You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. All right, how are we doing? Why did we turn it down? That was that's a whole jam. It's the best part of the morning. That. No, you're fine. I'm just giving you a hard time. How are we doing? Good, good. You know, I, I thought about this week as I was planning, uh, thinking through, praying through this passage, this question of how do we measure love? How do we measure love? Like if someone says, I am a loving person, or I love this thing, or this place, or going to this place, or I love this, this other individual, how do you measure that? How do you measure the depth or the quality of another individual's love. Now, I'm not the first person to think about this question. This is a question that has been pondered upon for centuries, going all the way back to Plato. Plato, he says, at the touch of love, everyone becomes a poet. Everyone becomes a poet. That's a nice way of saying that, isn't it? His uh, disciple, Aristotle, said, love is composed of a single soul inhabiting two bodies. Just romantic way of thinking about love, isn't it? If you move into the Enlightenment era, a well-known French philosopher and writer, Francois-Marie Arouet, later more popularly known as Voltaire, said, love is a canvas furnished by nature and embroidered by imagination. It isn't until the 20th century when we become far more interested in scientific approaches to questions that uh, we began to try to quantify or measure love through uh, the empirical sciences. And so uh, beginning as early as the 1920s, it was actually an, an entrepreneur by the name of J. Frank Meyer, uh, the inventor of several penny arcade machines, one of which was known as the love tester, uh, tried to come up with a way by which to measure the love or attraction between two people. It's an early blueprint from J. Frank Meyer, real blueprint actually from 1930. Uh, This was the first iteration of many such machines. It was aimed at measuring electrical conductivity between two people to determine how attracted they are to one another. Uh, This led to, a little over a decade later, 1937, engineering student and a physics student uh, by the name of Ed Kiefer and John Hawley, who developed the the cupidoscope. Um, Again, attempting to measure electrical conductivity between two individuals. They called them amorcycles, which is just a very clever name, a more root word there for love in the romantic languages. It had a way by which you could determine... um, how much attraction there was, this is actually a later rendition, I'll say something, keep this up for a moment. Um, the cupidoscope, I love the measurements on this, the lowest bar was no hope, so there's no hope between you two, and it goes all the way up to see the preacher, right? Because uh, you might be in for a wedding soon. Now this picture actually comes from 1969. Uh, this was known as the love tester as well, developed by a video game powerhouse, but this was before they became the video game powerhouse. This is actually, if you were to see, I don't know if you can see it on the, this box, but this is made by Nintendo. Um, Nintendo got into the market as well and developed their very own love tester. But despite the best philosophical minds and the best entrepreneurial efforts, the quest to measure or quantify love has still never really been fulfilled, has it? We're left with some, what, inspirational quotes and some strange, useless penny arcade machines. Maybe a collectible Nintendo machine. I don't know. I haven't checked that out. But we've never really figured this out. But what if the answer to quantifying love were much simpler than all of this? 
What if the measurement of love, how to measure love, were already given to us in another place? And as it turns out, I believe we find this measurement in our passage for this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Uh, we're actually going to kind of push into verse 12 today as well. Uh, 11 uh, is really, I think, a nice break uh, given the way John bookends this passage, but we are going to borrow from 12 a little bit as well. John continues in his letter where we are this morning, starting in verse 7, moving on from what we talked about last week, which was this idea of testing the spirits. Verses 1 through 6, that's what we talked about last week. If you weren't here, check it out on our YouTube or Spotify. We talked about the ways in which you can um, test various preachers or teachers that you listen to who proclaim to come from God. And, and John gives some great insights into what to look for to, to determine whether or not they're being carried on by the Holy Spirit or the spirit of the world, a, a demonic spirit, presumably. And, and he comes away from that topic back to the central theme of the second half of this letter. If you remember, First John is divided into two major themes. We had one whole sermon series that we began more or less the year with called Under Construction, which was the first half of First John, where that central theme is light. There's a light theme. God is light, and we should walk in him, John says. So uh, there is no darkness in God. There's truth. God shines the light into sin. We talked about the various ways that works itself out through the first half of that letter. The second half of this letter, uh, John moves away from uh, the reality that God is not only light, but that God is also love, and that we should love one another as a result of that. And that really is the central force of this passage this morning. It's really an interesting passage. I mentioned it a moment ago, but John gives the commandment not once, but twice. He actually bookends this passage with this commandment to love one another. Verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. There it is. And then he has a lot of things to say in verses 8 through 10 before he gets to verse 11, and he reissues this command. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So you get it both in verse 7 and verse 11, with verses 8 through 10 being the reasons for why we ought to love one another. So the commandment is really pretty simple. It's not easy to follow through with, but it's simple. Christians ought to love other Christians. We ought to love one another. Now, let me say a few things before we dive in. First, if we're going to love one another, we need to know for sure who the one another is. And in this context, and in most of the contexts in the New Testament, the one another is other believers in Christ. So when we think about Christian love, you have a general and a specific approach to love in the New Testament. Generally speaking, we're to love our neighbors, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, neighbor meaning just anyone with a pulse, really, any person. Uh, good or bad, Christian or non-Christian, moral or immoral, you're just to be sort of a generally loving person. But more specifically, you are to love other believers in your community. In fact, this is what Jesus uh, is getting at in John 13, 35, where he talks about, this is how the world is going to know that you're my disciple by your love for one another. So central to the identity of the Christian faith is a definite intentional, real, true love for other believers in the community of faith. To say it more succinctly, let me give you a truth. You cannot engage in the Christian life without engaging in Christian love. Can't do it. You can't walk out your faith and live the Christian life apart from engaging in Christian love for other believers in Christ. The question is, what is love? Now, if in your mind you're thinking, baby, don't hurt me. This is a reminder to take your ibuprofen for your lower back pain. In all seriousness, 
what is love? How do, we, how, do we, how do we engage in Christian love? In order to know how to rightly love others, we gotta understand what it is. We gotta understand what it means, how to define it, how to quantify it, how to measure it. And I believe this passage brings us great clarity into those endeavors. So let's jump into the text and talk about uh, the way that love is described here in these few verses. Here's the first thing that we find, and I'm gonna just warn you up front, it's gonna make up about 75% of this message. We're gonna be in just point one. And here it is, love is personified in God himself. Love is personified in God himself. Look at verse seven. John says, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So the commandment to love one another in a Christian sense is actually rooted in a theological reality. So this is important. You, you, I, this is, we're going to get very theological here, a little bit philosophical here for a moment. But, but I want you to understand that the commandment to love one another is not given just that we might look good as Christians. We're not to love one another because it's just like the nice thing to do, right? Or because it makes us feel good. Th those are all things that may be partly true. But that's not why we are to love one another as Christians, He's saying that if you are from God, if you've been born again, if you are a Christian, you will love other Christians because you are from God and love is from God as well. Love is personified in the person of God. So I want to park here for a moment and talk through this. There are two important realities that come from this text, one here in verse 7 and another in verse 8 that we'll get to here in a moment. And I want you to, to really connect with this concept that love is inseparable from the God of all things. It's inseparable from the Lord of Scripture. Two reasons for why that is true. Here's the first one. God is the source of all love. He's the fountain, the wellspring of all love. Now again, this is probably gonna be a little more philosophical than you bargained for when you got up and decided to go to church this morning, but you're more or less trapped here now. So um, let's do a little bit of philosophy. Notice that what John says in verse seven, it's very clear, love is from God. Love is from God. That means that any kind of actual biblical real love that is found in the world finds its ultimate source in God. It comes from nowhere else. Real actual love comes from him and him alone. Now you gotta get this because this is important. That means that if you do find love in the world and that that love falls short of the biblical definition of love, it does not come from God, nor is it actually love. It's like a counterfeit. There's a real version of it that comes from God, and then there are other versions of it that fall short of what love is meant to be. Now, what is love meant to be? Let's do a little uh, a recap from four weeks ago. We talked about this, uh, the definition of love. We said three things about it. We said, A, that it is the mark of genuine faith. Again, John 13, 35, this is how the world is gonna know that you are a disciple of Jesus by your love for one another. So it's a mark of genuine faith. It's modeled by Christ. Remember, we talked about how uh, his love was selfless and that it puts others before himself. It's satisfactory and that it accomplishes its purpose. It wasn't just thrown out there. It had a goal in mind and it, and it meets that goal, redemption, forgiveness, all the things that Jesus purchases for us on the cross. And beyond that, it is sacrificial. It costs something, costs the blood of Jesus. And so if we want a tangible example of what love is, if we're trying to kind of conceptualize what love is and we want something to look at, we need look no further than the person, the work of Jesus Christ. It's modeled through the actions of Jesus. But beyond that, it's materialized through action as well. So remember we said that love is not something that we simply communicate with words. 
that love, John says, comes through deed and truth. It comes through action, but it's also rooted in the scriptures. So if someone says then that they have love or they are loving or they love you in some way, but their love isn't those things, it doesn't meet those standards, it doesn't meet that criteria, it's not actually love, it's a fake. God is the source of all real love, and anything that doesn't match that biblical standard isn't from God, and therefore it's a counterfeit or a knockoff, or an even newer term that I just learned this week, I love this, it's a dupe. I like that. Anyone heard that term before? A dupe, yeah. So I uh, read a great article this week by Amanda Mole in The Atlantic, and she talks about, this is an, an article titled, Shoppers Are Stuck in a Dupe Loop. And she writes, short for duplicate, dupes are less expensive alternatives to a brand name product. Don't want to pay $118 for a Lululemon sweatshirt? Amazon will sell you a $39 version that's practically identical when viewed from a distance. Does $600 seem like a little much for what amounts to a very elaborate curling iron, even if it is made by Dyson? Side note, no, it does not seem like a little much. It seems outrageously like a lot much. $600 for a curling iron? Really? Is it that? Okay, yeah, I won't argue. I don't use it, so it's fine. Uh, TikTok, she says, loves this $299 alternative, which incidentally doesn't seem like a deal to me because it's still $300. But that's another sermon for another time. Virtually anything, she says, can be duped, and virtually everything is. Clothing, shoes, home decor, personal electronics, exercise gear, furniture, household cleaners, and every cosmetic or skincare product imaginable. She goes on and talks about the various contributing factors that lead somebody to buy a duped version of the real thing, and ultimately, and I think probably very unsurprisingly, it usually comes down to a lack of money. So you have a real item, a real product, it's the product that everyone wants, but it costs a little bit too much. And so you settle then for a knockoff version of it that's cheaper. It looks like the real thing, maybe from a distance. It just isn't as high quality. And the article, as I read it this week, it really stirred something within me. Because it occurred to me as I was reading it and then preparing for this message that love has been duped as well. There are dupe versions of love. In other words, we have love that comes from God. God is the source of all love, real love. But then we also have these knockoff versions of it as well that look like the real thing. They claim to be the real thing, but they're just cheaper, hollow versions of the real thing. And these kinds of dupe loves, they do not come from God. And once you really examine them, once you really get up close to these kinds of dupe loves, and you begin to examine the quality and, and the way it acts and the way it looks, you realize pretty quickly why it's not the real thing. Love is honestly, and this may shock some of you to hear me say this, but, but we're gonna just talk through it. Love, in many ways, is an idol. Love is an idol in our current modern context in America, and it has been for a very long time. This isn't just an American thing and a modern thing. Going all the way back to perhaps one of the most uh, influential church fathers in our, in our church history, uh, St. Augustine, uh, prior to his conversion in faith, talked about how he had fallen in love with the idea of love. That prior to knowing Jesus, prior to knowing true love, he was in love with this concept of what he thought love should be. And I would say that, that this is true for our modern context as well, that love has in many ways become a false god in America. We're going to read here in a moment, verse 8, that God is love. But in our current context, I would venture to say that the world would much rather confess that love is God. Love is an idol. 
Let me ask you, and I want us to think here for a moment, think through your modern, the modern world in which we live in. We're, we're going to engage a little bit here in the world around us and try to apply a Christian perspective or a Christian worldview to, to how we're living. When you think about the idea of progressive thought in the world today, what does progressivism claim to be built on? Yeah, like, so when you think of, for example, things like gender-affirming laws or LGBTQ plus activism, what is, the, what is claimed to be the driving force behind all of this? The claim is it's, it's all in the name of love, right? The, it, there's even the catchphrase, love is love, which is a way of saying that, like, no matter what it looks like or no matter how it acts, no matter what it is, it's love. And this is intentional. I would have you know this. This is an intentional strategy because what it does is it weaponizes whatever it is that we're talking about in such a way that if you disagree, what are you disagreeing with? You're disagreeing with love. And that makes you a very unloving person. Because love is not judgmental. Love lets you express yourself however you want, however you feel. You get to do that. Love is accepting of that. Love is accepting of whatever you think is right. So if you disagree with someone, someone's proclivities towards sex or gender identity or morality or whatever it is in the world that they are engaging in, if you think that there is a right way and a wrong way to do life, if you think that love does not accept all things, the only rational reason for why you would think that is that you are an unloving person because love accepts everything. But you've got to understand, people, this is a dupe version of love. It's a hollow God. Because true love finds its ultimate source in the person of God, in Christ. It finds its ultimate definition in the revelation of God, in Scripture. That's where we find what love actually looks like, how it operates, how it acts, what it, what it, what it looks like in action in the world around us. So here, I want to give you three diagnostic questions. As we're thinking through love in the world versus love from a scriptural standpoint, I want you to ask yourself three diagnostic questions. First, will God judge the unrighteous one day? Yeah, it's not a trick question. It, yes, the answer is yes. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10, Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil right? Whether you're a good person or a bad person, Christian or non-Christian, whatever, everyone, including the apostle Paul himself, will stand one day before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what you have done in the body, in your life, in your physical life. You will give an account for that. Now, if you're covered by the blood of Jesus, then your account is uh, that Jesus' righteousness covers you. Praise God for that. That's grace. That's mercy. We love that. But there will be a judgment one day. That is a true biblical reality. Here's the second question. Does God want you to express yourself based entirely on how you feel? No. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its way leads to death. So, so get what he's saying here. You might feel that what you're doing is right. You might feel that the choices you're making are the right choices, and those very choices are more than likely going to lead you to your destruction. God desires you to live not based on how you feel, but on how you're designed, the purpose for which you were designed. Your feelings lie to you sometimes. They're helpful. They're, you, you were created with feelings. They're, they're meant to be diagnostic in some ways, but they will also lie to you sometimes. They cannot be fully trusted. 
The only thing that we can anchor ourselves in that is fully true is God's scripture, his revelation. Question number three, does God accept all behavior? Again, no. Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. By the way, this sounds like side effects on a medicine bottle. Fits of anger, uh, anger, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will what? Get a little slap on the hand? Will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says. I mean, this ought to shock us. People who engage in this will not enter heaven. There are certain behaviors that it, the Bible's very clear about that God rejects. Now, here's why I ask these questions. It's not just to be doom and gloom, I promise. Here's why I ask these questions, because if God is judgmental towards sin, and he is, if he desires us to live in a way not based on how we feel, but based on how we are designed, which he does, and if he is not accepting of all behavior, which he isn't, and yet we can still confidently call God a loving God, then it stands to reason that love will also do all of these things because love is from God and God is the source of it all. God is willing, if God is willing to call balls and strikes on sin, so is love. If God rejects the notion that you should just live however you feel, love can reject that notion as well. If God holds us to a standard of living, of morality, love will hold us to that standard as well because love comes from God. So when we speak the truth concerning actions or behaviors that other people are engaged in, when we say something is morally wrong, we are not engaging in unloving action. It's actually quite the opposite. So let me give you an example of how to think about this that's maybe less loaded, that doesn't make you feel as, you know, uh, kind of separates you from the modern context a little bit. Let's imagine for a moment that you uh, buy a new car, and it's a fancy car. It's one of those cars that takes the premium unleaded gas, right, that you got to use the special uh, rich people gas for. And so um, you purchase this car, and you are out and about, and you're like, hey, uh, Pastor Derek, let me come pick you up. We'll go have lunch. And I'm like, great. Yeah, sounds good. Let's go. So we're driving around, and your, your gas light comes on. And you're like, hey, do you mind if I stop and get gas? I'm not going to say no to that. I don't want to get stranded on the side of the road. So yes. And so you pull up, and you put your card in, and you take the little pump out, and you hit regular unleaded. Would it be loving for me if I knew that that car took premium unleaded gas? for you to let you just do whatever you felt was right for your car in that moment? Like, no, you know, it's his car, his choice. Just let him put whatever gas he feels is best for him. You know, if it were me driving the car, maybe I would put premium unleaded, but I'm gonna let him decide that, you know, if regular unleaded is what he wants, then that's, that's his choice, and it would be unloving for me to judge him for that, right? And imagine, you know, some months later, you call me up and... and you're like, you know, uh, Pastor Derek, I was, I was going to come to church this morning, but, uh, but I don't have a ride. And I, and I said, well, what happened? You have a beautiful new car. Yeah, well, as it turns out, <laughs> I was supposed to be putting premium gas in it this whole time, and, and I've been putting regular gas because I thought it would be okay, and, and it's destroyed my engine. What do you think your response would be if I was like, yeah, I've known all along. <laughs> yeah, Bummer. I think you would be pretty rightly furious, right? Like, why don't you say something? Why don't you tell me that? You could have said something, Pastor Derek. That would have been the nice thing to do. 
Now, some of you who are maybe skeptical about this, this whole topic, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Derek, this is not the same thing at all. You know, you're talking about cars, not people. And you're right, it's not the same thing at all. Cars are worthless in the scope of eternity. People are not. People are created in God's image. They deserve the truth. They deserve the truth in love. They deserve the truth and love in deed and action. They deserve to know. What was it, uh, the, the Penn and Teller quote from years ago? How much must you hate someone to not tell them the truth? If this is what you really believe, if you really believe that eternity hangs in the balance here, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them about that? It's a good question for us to consider. If, if it is unloving to not speak the truth regarding a car, how much more unloving is it to not speak the truth regarding someone's eternal destiny? But, but beyond that, there, I think there's an even deeper point here, which is that people who engage in this dupe versions of love are not actually convinced either. Mole continues in this article. She writes, dupe hunting is at its core, listen to this, a tacit admission that you actually do really want the more expensive product. Once you own a dupe, she says, it's a constant reminder of that other, probably nicer thing that you might like even more. Every time you look at the dupe version, you're reminded of the better version. You're reminded of all the ways the version that you settled for falls short of what the actual version is meant to provide for you. So what, what this means then is that people will try to convince themselves that the dupe version that they've settled for is real, it's good, it's going to make them happy, it's going to bring them fulfillment, it's going to bring them ultimate satisfaction, despite the fact that there is this constant longing in their soul, even though they have the thing that's supposed to make them happy, they're not. And they know in their hearts why. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. It's a little lengthy, but just listen to the words of God here for a moment concerning this. Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So right off the bat, what Paul is saying here is that you know the difference between the real biblical love that proceeds from God in the world's version of it. You know the difference. You know you've settled for a dupe, and you're just suppressing the truth. You're pretending like it's not actually real. You ignore reality. Verse 19, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. He's saying that, that the evidence of the God of the Bible is clearly seen by just looking around you at everything that's made. And therefore, because God is the source of all love, it is tangibly visible, the, the evidence of real love in the world as well. Verse 21, he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged, listen to this, the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Love is a real and defined thing in the world. It hasn't been left up to us to define it. We don't get a say in it. 
Therefore, any love that exists in the world that is truly love finds its source in God himself. That means that any other religious movement or secular movement that claims to be, get this, a movement founded on love has unknowingly hijacked its identity from the Christian faith. It's taken love, it's stripped it down, it's redesigned it a little, put it on the market for a much smaller price as a dupe version of the real thing. The real thing costs a lot, doesn't it? It costs the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not cheap. Anything that falls short of that is just a dupe. It's a cheap knockoff. And every time someone settles for it, they, they, they look at it and they inwardly know, this isn't the real thing and I wish it was. Because it doesn't bring me the satisfaction that I hoped it would. God is the source of all love and there's a reason for that. And that brings us to our second sub-point here of this first long point. God is the source of all love because love is an attribute of God. Love is an attribute of God. So when we think of the attributes of God, we think of things like uh, the omniscience of God, that God is all-knowing, that he knows all things, uh, that he is omnipotent, meaning that he has limitless power, that he can do whatever he wants, he has all the power in the world, there is no end to his power, that he's omnipresent, meaning that he is everywhere at all times. That's a hard one to wrap your mind around, isn't it? But it's what the Bible teaches, Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. God says in Jeremiah 23, 24, don't put that quote up because it's wrong. This is what he says. Can a man hide himself? I don't know where that came from. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? This is a, uh, um, he's not really asking this. A man cannot hide himself in all places. He goes on and says, do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh? The answer is yes, God fills the heaven and the earth. These are the attributes of the very fabric of who God is. God reveals himself in scripture. These are the ways in which God has described himself, the characteristics, the attributes of of who he is. One such attribute is that he is love. So it's not that God is loving, right? It's not that he's a loving God. It's that he is himself love. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love, So in typical John fashion, I love how he does this, John has a way of driving something home by saying something that is true and then saying the inverse of that as well to make sure that he's covered all the bases. So in verse seven, he's like, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse eight, and anyone who does not love God does not know God, just in case you were thinking there was like another way around that, right? And then he tells us why that's true, because God is love. So love, understand this, finds its source in him because it is an attribute of him. Here's how it fleshes out practically. It means that whenever you engage in a dupe version of love, you are actually presenting an aspect of God to the world that is false, that's dishonest. So if it is true that that we, as we love others, as we have been loved by Christ, if in that love we are showing people what God is like, It is also true that when we hijack love and redefine it, we're showing something to people about God, but that is not true. It's false. It's a caricature of who he is. So I want you to ask yourself this question. Does your love tell the truth or a lie about who God is? In your relationships, in your family, your friends, the world, whatever environment, work, school, fill in the blank. Does your love tell the truth about who God is? 
Or does it tell a lie? If your love is never confrontational, if it never holds people to standards, if it demands nothing from anyone, chances are you're projecting a caricature of who God is, not the real thing. When Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, he meant the real version of love, not the dupe version, not the knockoff. What does your love communicate to the world around you? Love is personified by God himself. Let's keep moving. We got two more real quick. We'll wrap up. Second, love is proven by God's action. Look at verse 10. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is such a needed gospel-centered reminder for us that the proof of God's love for you in your life is not that you loved God first. It's not that you woke up one day and just decided, like, I'm going to follow Jesus. You didn't go to a camp. You didn't have a moment where you were just decided. You just worked up within yourself this desire to all of a sudden love the Lord who made you. The gospel says, no, this is love. This is the proof of God's love, not that you loved him, but that he loved you first. That before you were ever aware of or capable of loving him, God loved you. One of the things I like to talk about with regard to this, just as an illustration, is um, my daughter, Camelia. So those of you who know me well know this. Those of you who are maybe newer don't know this, that uh, my wife, Jessica, and I, we have three little girls, one of whom is named Camelia. She's my eldest daughter. She is also adopted. So uh, early on when we began starting a family, Jessica had uh, back-to-back miscarriages. We weren't sure if we were ever going to be able to have children. And my sister at the time, who was fighting a meth addiction, was pregnant with her second child and uh, wasn't going to be able to keep the baby, was going to put the baby up for adoption. And uh, Jessica came to me and said, hey, uh, what if we prayed about adopting your sister's baby? And I was like, don't even need to pray about it. No, no chance, no way. And uh, of course, we prayed about it, and we felt very much like this is where God was leading us. And so we signed the adoption paperwork. My sister was about five, uh, five months pregnant at that point. Uh, about a week later, Jessica got pregnant. And so Cam came in June, Tori came in November. They're five months apart. But, but I always tell Camelia, I've always told her, we've, we've always been honest with her since she was born, that she's adopted. And, and we used to tell her all the time, you know, I, we didn't get to choose Tori or Lydia. You know, they, they came out of mommy's tummy and whatever they looked like, whether they were a boy or a girl, we just, they were ours. But we, we always remind her that we chose you. We, we, didn't ha- we, we didn't have to be your mom and dad. We wanted to be your mom and dad. We chose to be your mommy and your daddy. We chose specifically you to be our baby. And so early in life, Camelia talked about adoption as it were a privilege. And I believe it is a privilege. And we talk a lot about how adoption models the relationship that God has with his children. That God chooses us. He chooses to love us. He he makes a decision to love us. He demonstrates his love in tangible ways through actions. He intervenes. That's what John means here in verse 10. He sent his son as a propitiation. We talked about what that meant several weeks ago, the first time John used that word, that, that uh, that he expiates our sin, that he stands in place for it and brings perfect forgiveness to it. God acts in a way. And and beyond that, uh, he he demonstrates it while we were at our worst. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means that the worst version of yourself was the moment God made the decision to love you and die for you. Not when you were on your way to getting things right, not when you were turning it around or I better get my act together. No, in the depth of your sin, that's when God chooses to love you. 
And this love, this choice made by God, leads to adoption. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So love, understand this, is not only personified in who God is, it's proven out in what God does, namely choosing to love his children, to send his son to die for them, and to adopt them into his family. And then here's the cool part about it. His love is not only personified in who he is and proven out by what he does, but it's ultimately perfected in his people. Look at verses 11 through 12. John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, that word perfected, it does not imply the idea that God's love was somehow imperfect or full of error. The word perfected, it's the Greek word teleao. It's a word that means to execute fully to reach the end of, to run through. It's the, it brings the idea of completion into picture. This is incidentally the same root word of one of the words that Jesus speaks in John 19.30 when he's about to breathe his last breath on the cross. It says in, in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished to telestai, same root. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So, so get this, the love of God has a purpose. There's a goal in mind. There's a telos in mind, right? That purpose has a, a target that it is aimed towards, and it finds its target, its ultimate fulfillment, when it is carried out through the redeemed covenant people of God in relationship with one another. God's love is personified in himself. He's the source of all love because it's, a, it's an attribute of who, who he is. So it exists in the world because God exists. And that love is proven out through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a tangible demonstration of his love for us, but that love exists for a purpose. It's not simply just to be thrown out there so that everybody can see it. There's a reason it is here. It's not just to be demonstrated, it's to be delegated. When we love others in this way, in this sacrificial, satisfactory, selfless manner, God's purpose is perfected. His love is perfected in his people. It's completed. It runs its course. It reaches its end. It finds its ultimate goal. When the church embodies this kind of love for one another, the love of God hits the finish line. Think of love as a long and arduous marathon through the course of human history, demonstrated, carried out, through the sacrifice of the Son of God, that arduous marathon meets its end. The runner crosses the finish line every time the people of God, born anew from this love, takes that love and applies it to other people in community. When that happens, understand this, the world will know we belong to Him. They will know and they will look at their dupe version of love that has not brought satisfaction, that has not brought fulfillment, that has left this hole within them, that has left them confused, wondering why they don't feel the way they believe they should feel given the fact that they've gotten what they thought they needed. And they will see the love of the church and realize, that's what I wanted. That's it. That's the real thing. I want that. What a witness 
to the world of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Our love is when it's done the right way. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you for another challenging reminder of the ways in which we so fall short in defining what love actually is. Love exists because you exist, because it's an attribute of your very character. And we see it proven out on the cross of Christ, but we see it perfected in the ways in which the people of God simply walk in obedience to love others through life's difficult moments. Help us, God, love one another more deeply, more truthfully, more fully. Help our love be a witness to the world around us of what love actually looks like. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness, your kindness to us. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus who loved us first. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. I want to make you uh, aware quickly, parents of kids going to kids camp, right after this service in the fifth grade room next door, we have a pre-camp meeting. You need to attend that meeting uh, for your children to have the most success at camp. So go there right now, right away. See you. God bless you.